Hello, thank you for listening to this Aspen podcast discussing the paper, Association Between Dextrose-Containing Maintenance Fluids and Phosphorus Supplementation During Total Parental Nutrition Initiation in Hospitalized Adult Patients, a Retrospective Cohort Study. My name is Kenneth Christopher, and I am Editor-in-Chief of JPEN. Today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Anna Kreider from the Department of Pharmacy at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. Dr. Kreider is a pharmacist who specializes in cardiology clinical pharmacy. Dr. Kreider is first author of the JPEN original research article we will discuss. Dr. Kreider, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My first question to you is what motivated you and your colleagues to do the study? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I think one of the largest motivating factors for us as a study group was just the overall lack of literature surrounding what type of maintenance fluid we can use in our patients, specifically when they're nothing by mouth or NPO. And how do we appropriately manage the transition of being NPO and then going to some kind of nutrition. Mainly, we think about the higher risk nutritional feeds, such as total parenteral nutrition. And so I think it was myself and my colleagues were trying to explore how do we better care for these patients that really there is no literature to guide what appropriate fluid to use. And so through the Brigham Women's kind of partnership and strong interdisciplinary team structure within the hospital, we were able to develop this study that ultimately was trying to figure out is there really a difference? Is there a maintenance fluid that would be better in these patients as we're transitioning from a period of nothing by mouth to starting nutrition? And how do we really try to potentially prevent our largest concern, which would be refeeding syndrome? That's excellent. And some of the most interesting and most important studies stem from clinical observations or vexing clinical problems that you know seem to trouble every practitioner all over the world. And so I, when I first saw your particular study, I was excited about just the opportunity to try to answer this particular question. My next question is why you chose or why did you choose your specific study design? Absolutely. So one of the largest considerations we wanted in conducting the research was being able to have a comparator group so largely based on just the data we had available, we didn't have the time to be able to conduct a prospective study. So from a feasibility standpoint, we targeted more of a retrospective study design, and we just wanted to compare what was actually happening in clinical practice. So we wanted to be able to have two distinct groups, okay, which patients received dextrose, which ones received no dextrose containing maintenance fluids, and how did those patients compare to each other? We tried to capture patients who were on the total parenteral nutrition for the same indications or similar indication purposes. So that way we could have a similar patient population. And we were really just trying to observe what's actually happening in clinical practice and how are these patients comparing to one another based on their electrolyte supplementation and if the maintenance fluids were actually driving any of those supplementations. That's excellent. What was the most difficult part of completing the study? I think the largest difficulty was ultimately finding patients. We had several exclusion criteria because we were trying to tease out 
any additional factors that would cause potential additive electrolyte losses. And so we really wanted to tease out which patients were presenting in more of a refeeding syndrome earlier and being able mm. to identify, oh, are they having more electrolyte shifts because they're now starting TPN or is the electrolyte shifts happening because of some other medication they're receiving, such as, you know, diuresis or other medications that are known to cause electrolyte losses. So I think one of the most difficult parts was really finding those patients that you were able to limit as much of those unknown electrolyte losses as possible. And then really making sure from a time perspective, we wanted each patient to be assessed on a duration of TPN initiation and how much mm -hmm. electrolytes they received over that time period. So it was really important when going through each patient chart, being very diligent and breaking down, okay, what is our time point A? How do we make sure that we copy forward how we collect each data point for each patient? So that way all of the electrolytes are collected appropriately. So I assume in the planning stages and in your own mind, you had a time frame of months or years that the study would take. And I imagine it took a lot longer than you had perhaps planned for or were ready for. Yes, we went back to the drawing board several times based on how many patients we thought was feasible, how many patients had been done in previous studies. So it was definitely kind of as things came up. And we also, you know, there's new things that you unveil every day as you're looking through patients. There's always going to be, oh, how do we triage this certain patient that fits all of these criterias, but then has this unique situation? How do we capture appropriately every patient that we can? So a lot of decision-making, a lot of planning, a lot of thinking um, before you essentially implemented the study, uh, collecting information and then uh, analyzing. Correct. There was a lot of also, I would say, maybe pivoting as well, to mm. where initially we were hoping to have a larger patient population. And then when you're not able to meet the patient population, figuring out, okay, with the patients that we do have the data and the information on, how do we best present what we did see in those situations? Excellent. And what were your, what was your most surprising finding? I think the most surprising part was we were expecting the dextrose containing maintenance fluid group to have significantly more electrolyte supplementation requirements. And they surprisingly didn't have significantly more. Even though our study wasn't power, powered to detect a difference, we didn't find that there was actually a significant difference. And actually, there was less potassium requirements after TPN initiation in the dextrose-containing group versus the non-dextrose. So we were kind of along the lines of, oh, maybe we hit on something here, but maybe the amount of dextrose and the amount of calories from the dextrose really wasn't enough to actually see large enough of a difference. That's interesting. So it could have been... Uh, based on the fact that your study may not have had the power to detect difference or mm -hmm. the magnitude of the difference is so small that it essentially is undetectable, even if you had a very large sample size. Right. And so then it brings the question of, I know there was usually in the 
refeeding syndrome. I know there's the guidelines published by Aspen as well. They make the recommendation of kind of cautiously using dextrose fluids. And so it kind of brought up the point of kind of like you alluded to of maybe it's not enough of a dextrose component to actually cause these significant shifts. And we we tried to break down the percentage of kcals per day that patients were receiving from the dextrose containing fluids, and it was on a relatively low percentage amount. Um, So it was based on that amount that we said, oh, these patients really, it's not their nutrition source. It's not where they're actually receiving a significant amount of kcals per day from from the maintenance fluids. Yeah, that's interesting. If you had to do the study over, what would you change? I think if I had to do it over again, I would try to possibly target, ideally making it more of a prospective study and seeing if you could break down those different percentage of kcals per day that patients receive from dextrose-containing fluids to figure out, oh, is there truly maybe an ideal rate that you could run a dextrose-containing fluid at that you would provide Mm -hmm. enough amount of calories just for that short period of time while they're nothing by mouth, still providing a small degree of calories to hopefully then prevent any degree of those electrolyte shifts that we see when we restart nutrition. So that would probably be an ideal, which is something that we really didn't think about in the beginning when we were initially drafting the study, mm. but when we saw the varying rates of fluids and how patients could get, you know, based on what their required KCALs per day, that they're getting varying percentages, it would be important to look at, oh, is there an ideal percentage of KCALs that we could provide through these maintenance fluids? So a relatively simplistic idea in one's head in terms of a study design and types of patients becomes very nuanced and quite complicated um, when, when you actually uh, begin and are in the middle of the actual study itself. Mm-hmm. This is, it's interesting because if one were to repeat the study, the amount of information that you collected and the choices you made would be very helpful for another group of investigators so they wouldn't have to go through that same sort of process that you had to go through to figure out it's essentially how to actually answer your research question. Yeah, absolutely. Of kind of saying, oh, what did work? What didn't work? What can we take from this to then build on a future study? Absolutely. Exactly. Um, What advice do you have for other investigators, especially first authors? Definitely patience and diligence. (laughs) There is never going to be a perfect timeline. And I think setting soft and hard deadlines and figuring out, okay, if there's a roadblock in the way or something unexpected happens, how do you kind of pivot and move around it? How do you tackle the unknowns? And then also communication diligence. So having Again, those soft deadlines and figuring out, you know, what's working well, what's not working well, where are your biggest kind of pitfalls, where are you taking the most amount of time and trying to figure out how to be more efficient and trying to make sure that everything is as cohesive and on time as possible. Excellent. And I know you had a good group of investigators because I know some of them. Um, (laughs) And I wanted to ask one particular question about the publication process. 
because there's a lot of great ideas and there's a lot of projects that never make it uh, to published. So do you have any advice for uh, first authors or author groups in terms of the publication process? Mm -hmm. Yes, we definitely, in the process of publishing, definitely is more time intensive. Also figuring out what are ideal papers to have, you know, your paper published in. I think with our study group, I fortunately had previous, you know, authors before me who had strong experience of the process. So I think having that mentorship was really helpful and speaking and kind of picking their brains to people who have done the publication process in the past is definitely very helpful. They can tell you how certain things like to be formatted, how to respond to certain questions, things along those lines, because every article, every journal has different requirements. So I think that nuance of having a mentor or someone who's done it before is incredibly helpful. And I encourage people to seek out. Um, the other thing too would be to have multiple journals that you would potentially want the paper to be presented in. Um, at least from the beginning process, you have an idea of what would be the ideal journal. And mm -hmm. then sometimes, like you mentioned, there's just so many studies available. It kind of becomes, how are you able to at least get it to you know, one journal. So that way, at least the public is able to see it. So I think being flexible to having multiple options of papers that you could present to and adjusting based on those requirements, while also still making sure that your paper reflects what that paper also typically discusses and publishes. Yeah, I always think that every paper has a home. It's mm -hmm. not always true. But in my <laughs> mind, I always hope it's true when I'm writing my own papers. Um, speaking of what's next, um, what are you studying now? Yeah, so with the kind of um, job shift, so I'm new to Emory. I've been here for about a year at the time that the paper was published. And so now I've kind of shifted more into anticoagulation management. So we help manage a lot of our advanced heart failure, specifically our LVAD patients. And then we're also looking into how we manage our direct oral anticoagulants in acute kidney injury on the inpatient side. So I've kind of shifted away a little bit from the nutrition side, um, but mm -hmm. definitely still see it very commonly on the inpatient side and mm -hmm. have kind of switched more into how do we manage our anticoagulation. Well, the clinical research skill set is applicable to lots and lots of different types of publications in terms of different publications and different fields. Um, sometimes people ask me what my focus is or was in terms of the outcomes research that I did. And I was very much an opportunist and I collaborated with lots of different types of fields, whether it's surgery or medicine, et cetera, to try to uh, study things that were very interesting to me. So I think that you'll find that the skill set that you developed uh, with this particular project will be exceedingly helpful for the next projects that you have going forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you to Dr. Kreider for your experience and your expertise. It was a delight to discuss your work. And we also want to thank you, our audience, for listening to this Aspen podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review over on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. This is Kenneth Christopher from Boston signing off. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.